This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. For a moment there, I was uh, looking at myself on my computer. Uh, <laughs> I thought, no, I can't. I don't want to give a talk looking at myself. <laughs> so now I have this uh, wonderful image of uh, little images of all of you. Um, I had planned, I'm, I'm giving the talk from my apartment, and I had planned to do it in a place where I'd have a nice Buddha statue behind me, but my internet wouldn't work there. so. I, I I do have a Buddhist statue, uh, although it's small and hard to recognize. Uh, and then there were under other wonderful questions. You know, usually uh, this is if, before I have given a couple of Saturday morning talks while I was at Tassajara, and this is the first one back in the city. Uh, and I brought my my trusted. Uh, Sutra cover. And now I will set it aside. And, uh, and then I thought, um, well, how should I dress? You know? And as you can see, put on my full outfit. <laughs> uh, probably most of you don't know that in, in Soto Zen, uh, I'm not sure if it's just Soto Zen, but in Soto Zen, we have one robe we wear for Zazen, and then another one, which is a seven jo, seven panels, and, there, and then another one for giving talks. Uh, and, and it was reminding me, you know, I've just come up this week from uh, Tassajara, our formal, our traditional monastery down in the wilderness behind Big Sur. And I was thinking about the contrast of the two lifestyles, you know, being a householder in the city and being in, in a monastery in the wilderness. Uh, and, and both those are significant, you know, that it's a monastery, traditional Zen monastery. You know, each day has a rhythm. Zazen, chanting, breakfast, work, lunch, work, bathing, dinner, zazen, you know? Uh, and all that in the context of wilderness, all that in the context of a, um, a presence, you know, you know a, a wonderful, Zen teacher, Shuhaka Kamura, has just finished giving a teaching here at City Center. Well, actually, he's back in Bloomington. Uh, but in our minds, he was here giving a, a, a teaching uh, about insentient being preaching the Dharma. And it seems like in the wilderness that surrounds Tassajara, it has a presence, 
I went down there for a three month, and the plan was a three month period, January, February, March, and then I would return. But the pandemic struck and I rearranged uh, the schedule. And, and so I stayed for eight months, uh, for which I am uh, deeply appreciative. Uh, there's, there's something about engaging in a way that has a, a continuance, you know? It, I, I think of it as there, there's a steady influence and the more we stay in proximity to that influence or even better immersed in that influence, the more thoroughly it unpacks and undoes the habituations of our life. And in a way, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, and not to say, you know, that monastic life is nothing but serenity and equanimity and the gracious presence of each other in, in that exquisite environment. No, as human beings, we manage to bring in things to perplex us, annoy us, uh, challenge us, disturb us, and uh, and and you and you learn. This is monastic life. It's this uh, a Tibetan teacher, uh, Chogum Trumpa, once described it as being in a shower with a jet of really hot water and a jet of really cold water. It, it, so Tassahara, as I think with monastic practice, there is this influence towards peacefulness, you know, and, and ease, a flow, an acceptance. And then there's this other karmic undoing that expresses itself uh, in, in little ways. No, actually, sometimes not so little. This week, when I came back, I uh, I got an email from someone and said, "Oh, this happened at Tassahara." No, in inviting my involvement, uh, two people had a misunderstanding, and they spoke to each other in a kind of clumsy way. And in a monastery, uh, we are afforded the opportunity to unpack it thoroughly. And, and when you, in that context, you can, it, it's kind of obvious to see that uh, this event was symbolic for both of these people that in their subjective world, it represented something deep in their own process. They had projected onto this other person, they had projected onto the occasion, the interaction, some powerful 
expression of being for them. And, and as happens in all of our lives, it, this one flared up into a, an uncomfortable, challenging experience for them both. And part of me thought, ah, may this be how the challenges of our life arise, you know? That here they are, identified, acknowledged, with the capacity to meet them and address them. No. And then I was contrasting that. I was watching myself, you know, back in the city after this long hiatus from being in the city. What, what's it like to be back in the city? You know? At first, it reminded me a little bit, once I went to uh, an environmental event um, over in Fort Mason which is a, a conference center in San Francisco. And, and there was probably 500 people at the event. And up in the stage were, were two, um, two men who days before had left the Amazon jungle for the first time, where they'd lived their whole lives and they were standing on the stage looking at this surreal world of human beings who don't have the relationship to nature they have. And I marveled at the way they stood, you know? The way they looked out as if to say, this is totally strange, but it's kind of amazing. and the way they maintain their own presence. So when I come back from Tassajara, the, uh, the way the wilderness, the way the creek, the way noticing the light changing, after a while you can notice it, how it changes even in a couple of days, you know? We, we, we start meditation, somewhere around sunrise and, or the first light and we end it a little bit after the end of uh, this is sun, setting sun and then fading light. Uh, that connection to nature coming back to the city uh, as if to say insentient being had been instructing me, had been whispering in my ear what life is. And now uh, there were other voices, there were other uh, expressions, descriptions of reality. The pandemic, you know, Black Lives Matter, protests, uh, the turmoil with the economy, with politics, you know, all these things arising uh, and, and speaking 
speaking their version of reality. And then the particulars of my own life, you know, the, the utility of the things to take care of, sorting through mountains of junk mail, just in case there's something in there I have to attend to. <laughs> and how initially it had this somewhat surreal notion. It was like, oh, look at this. Look at this pile of mail. And then the utility of sort through it. What can be discarded? What needs to be kept? And And then to listen to Shohaku and reflect on his teachings. He told this marvelous story, which I'll repeat in brief for those of you who didn't hear it. He's 15, he's at school, he's disillusioned. Um, and, and he, I forget what we used to call it when we were kids. Uh, when you'd skip school, we had a slang term for it. I think it was bunking. So he bunked for the day. I see John nod. He bunked for the day. <laughs> John. I went to the creek to write a poem. So he sat beside the creek, listening to the creek for inspiration and to catch the sign of the creek and weave it into the poem. And he had a sense, uh, sitting there doing that accidentally, coincidentally, he had an experience of presence. Um, that way in which consciousness, our human consciousness can listen to insentient being and, and not be so lost or dictated to by it, its own narrative the narrative of our subjective experience. The I, the me, that defines reality, defines what it is, has a response to our own definition, and then has conclusions and emotions around our assessment, our definitions. So listening to the creek, something settled, and, and how, and then he went on to describe in brief, how transformative that moment of, um, of simplicity. That moment where the, the internal narrative with all its accompaniment quiets. As Mary Oliver says, and a silence within which another voice can speak. Uh, and I was thinking, it, it, what it brought up to mind was something I'd been thinking about, which was a Zen teaching, uh, certainly prevalent in Zen, probably in other parts of Buddhism too. And it's, it has two terms. One is Mu Shin, and the other one is U Shin. And the Mu is a negation and the ooh 
is a kind of affirmation. So the dropping of the particulars of the subjective world, motion, and the affirmation of the particulars of the subjective world. And I would suggest to you that within the context of Zen, within the context of practice, uh, I would say personally, uh, in however we're defining practice, there, there's, there's a request to, in the vernacular of Northern Ireland, cut yourself on, you know, like see your own stuff. Okay, here's my subjective experience in this moment. I'm delighted, I'm annoyed, I'm frightened, I'm enthusiastic. No? Here's me creating my description of reality. This is a good thing. This is not a good thing. This is a lovely person. This is a terrible person. Uh, my life's going well, my life's going badly. Global warming is going to destroy us. This is an opportunity and a challenge for us to meet the world afresh, to bring up beginner's mind and to meet and to drop old worn-out habits and to create a new way of being. And within the burden of that motion, somehow finding um, a release. A return to simplicity. And what I'd like to suggest this morning is, you know, traditionally I would say that traditionally Mushin is characterized as it was characterized in Shuhaku Gomorrah Roshi's recounting of listening to the creek. Everything drops away. There's a, there's a simplicity of being. And, uh, and what I'd like to propose this morning is that in addition to that marvelous practice uh, that, that I think each of us uh, can benefit from can rediscover okay, who we are, where we are, how we are. There is also the practice of engaging Ushin, the stuff of our life, in a way that we find the same understandings, appreciations, who we are, how we are, what we are. And here's a notion I'd offer you, is, is that um, 
given the, the tenacity of our ocean, the, the way we create a reality, the way we, we respond to that reality, the way we um, live within that reality. It, it, it's its own immersion, you know? We are immersed in being, you know? Recently, I was reading an article by uh, Robin DiAngelo, who wrote a book, a powerful, provocative book called uh, White Fragility. And she, I was struck by a phrase which I thought was a classic Zen statement, where she said, what arises, we can relate to it as a way out or a way in. The way out is we just get carried away by our own stuff. We're, we're hoodwinked by the world according to me. And we say, yes, that's reality. And then we have our accompanying responses to it our emotions, our habitual way of being, our habitual way of relating, our habitual way of dividing the world into right and wrong. And she was suggesting, in contrast, that we turn it around and instead of being a way out, it's a way in. That we examine it. That we look at the the propositions of reality that are coming up, that we look at how we're responding to it, that we look at the world it sets up. You know? And of course, she was referring to it in the context of racism, justice and injustice, and all the consequences those things create. And the circumstances that created them in the first place. Uh, so both Mushin as this dropping away, and then Ushin as this engagement. And in a way, in a powerful historical way, uh, this meeting and engaging Ushin is the heritage of Zazen in the Zen school. The heritage of uh, relating to consciousness and feelings and physical sensations with this mind, this consciousness, this heart mind that's engaging in a way to express awakening. No. Not that it matters much, but traditionally it's called Jiji Uzamai uh, in the Zen school. The continuous practice of meeting what arises and learning from it. Uh, And then how do we do it? Well, 
And, you know, I started this talk by mentioning my own uh, what the discovery of what, what is the mandala of practice when I'm giving a talk from my own apartment, you know? What, what does that look like? What are the particulars, you know? Every situation has its own particulars, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether we eat our breakfast with a cup of coffee in one hand and looking at the at the news at the same time as we're reading, uh, and yet when we engage in that way, to use the phrase from Dogen that Chohaku was talking about, insentient beings are silent. They are, uh, they're inanimate. Yeah? They're, they're invisible. And as they become invisible, the, the world that we're creating in that moment becomes assumed and in a way invisible in of itself. And so not only the inanimate, but the, the very animate ocean of our being becomes invisible. We become like a mystery to ourselves. Like often the insights we have, and I think for each of us to reflect on this, the insights we have about ourselves, about our relationships, about the world, often they're quite simple. Their profundity is in their clarity and how they're not caught up in our opinions and judgments and habitual way of thinking. They arrive from beginner's mind. They arrive from a mind that has started over. A mind that has gone beyond its unexamined assumptions. Like when I think of those two people at Tassajara, a couple of weeks ago, I brought them both together. And, and I know them both very well, which is one of the great gifts of Zen, practicing together for years and years. I sat them down and in a kind of humorous way, I said to them both, would you stop it? I said, you know, this is not middle school, you know? You're not nine years old, you know? playing out your grudges by annoying this other person. And then we all left. And uh, with what voice do we speak to ourselves when we're trying to arouse the impulse, the motivation, to practice. 
And I would suggest to you that's a very significant uh, consideration. Over the years of, you know, being a mentor and a coach and a teacher for other practitioners, um, I, I've learned that reassurance and encouragement is much more effective than criticism and scolding. Making someone feel bad about themselves so they will uh, so-called reform. You know? I've, I've, I've learned that reassurance and encouragement, they, they set the stage for honesty and honest inquiry. What is going on for me? You know? So in a humorous way, I engage those two people as if to say, nothing terrible has happened. Yes, you're annoying each other. Yes, it's not, it's not helpful for either of you or for the Sangha, but nothing terrible has happened. This is why we're here, you know? We're here to, to learn. And let's see if you can learn something about each other and how you trigger each other. And what would be an alternative way to deal with it? And how does any one of us find the skillfulness, the honesty, I would say radical honesty, the fortitude, the patience uh, to engage in that way. One of the things Robin DiAngelo said, she said, and often significant characteristic is that there's something uncomfortable. You know, there, there, there's some kind of tension, sense of conflict, discomfort that we're challenged to turn towards. You know? Not to act it out, but to inquire to create insight, you know? And how do we do that, you know? Uh, and, and here's uh, what I'd like to suggest. Um, there, there's a teaching in, in Buddhism, a long-standing teaching, as far as I can tell, from what I've read about it. It's called, in, in, in Pali, it's called the Paramis. And then in Sanskrit, it's called the Paramitas. Uh, really, it's, but it's the same term, essentially. And, and, and the word Parami 
or paramita, it can mean, it's, it's often translated as a kind of a, a transcendent way of engaging. Or sometimes it's described as crossing over to the other shore. You know, on this shore, we're stuck in our karma. We cross over and we see, we have insight into that karma and we're not stuck. I would offer you a much messier notion that um, we have our insights and then lo and behold, we turn around and we do a replay of the very thing we had an insight into. As if quite simply, we've forgotten. Uh, and I think anyone who sat Zen for more than five minutes has uh, borne witness to this. There's this unrelenting capacity within us to repeat. That's what we do. So the messy notion of paramita that I'd like to offer you is that it fits very nicely with what in the Mahayana we call the Bodhisattva Bhav. Delusions are inexhaustible. They keep coming back. And so we need to keep coming back. That there's a kind of a an understanding of the capacity our habitual way of being has in terms of repeating itself. That's what it's going to do in a whole variety of ways. You can pack up, come to the monastery, get your Zen outfit, uh, engage in all the beautiful traditional Zen practices, and guess what? If you're like the rest of us, right there in the middle of all that, you'll recreate <laughs> the very stuff you're made of, the very stuff that brought you to the monastery that you thought you were going to get away from. <laughs> and it's not a problem. It's not cause for alarm. It's not cause for shame and regret and remorse. Uh, the challenge is more uh, can we go in rather than opt out? Can, can we explore? Mm. Can we feel the intensity of the worldview? we're bringing forth? Can, can we feel and notice the rigidity of the thinking of it? Can we notice how often it can shape our, uh, what we're attending to? 
So these two people that I've been mentioning at Tassahara. Then together, the three of us explored how they trigger each other. It's like each of them has become an expert in what it is about the other person that they find offensive. Outside of the intensity of their intrigue of how they relate to each other and how each other has become emblematic of the karma of their lives. Most of us wouldn't notice the little details, but for them, sensitized, each little detail, they did that just to annoy me. That was their sole purpose in doing that. That's what one of them said to me recently. And I thought, what can we say? Is there a single one of us hasn't been hooked by that notion? Not that we say it as an intellectual notion, but the notion is, is charged with feelings for us. And those feelings have deep roots. They go back in time. They go back to when we were open and available, taking in the world, sentient and insentient, and letting it shape us. So this is a uh, This is the human condition. And from the Zen school, each time we sit down, it's a statement of, yes, I will. I will sit in the middle of the human condition, my own and our collective human condition. And I will attempt to be awake for the unfolding of this amazing creative narrative that I insist upon making about being alive. And then I would suggest to you, after the end of our sitting, whether it was 10 minutes or 10 hours, there's, there's valid reason for saying to ourselves, okay, well, I, uh, I was present a little bit <laughs> and I didn't notice the intensity with which the world, according to me, asserts itself. And in that, can we learn the proposition of the six paramitas? Can we learn, the, the first one is generosity. Can we learn the, the generosity 
that says, okay, this is what's happening. It may be painful or difficult. It, 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 it may be weighing on my life. But it doesn't require aggression, profound criticism, opposition. A generous attitude towards our being alive. What does it request? The second paramita. Sila. That which behavior that promotes the spacious, wholesome being. And, and sometimes in our sitting, we're looking at how we're engaging sitting. Are we tightening? Are we struggling? Or are we allowing? You know? Are we allowing that generosity? Are we allowing this substrata of being that's usually overlaid with deep interest and preoccupation with the world according to me? You know? Can we allow that substrata of being to start to reveal itself? Mm. Here's the patterns of thinking. Here's how all this is held in the body. Here's a psychosomatic expression of it. Here's the emotional intensity that I find arises with each inhale or each exhale. And can we meet all this and the persistence of our own contraction? No? In Buddhism, we have a, a, a profound and simple notion. Dukkha, the word do meaning contract, contracting to being dukkha, suffering. Sukha, expanding, opening, softening, pleasant. This is this simple binary of our being. Can we be patient? Can we be willing as Robin DiAngelo says, to go in, even when it's disturbing, challenging, unpleasant. Generosity, virtuous conduct, and patience. The three primary paramitas. They soften us. They start to work on us. And the great thing about them is we can start to engage them in a, in a tangible way. You know, I, I have written out uh, what I did recently. I was teaching a class and, and so I wrote out uh, Reflections and practices 
on, on each of them. And at the end, I'm going to ask Kodo, so get ready, Kodo, wherever you are. Uh, is, there, is there a way to disseminate this? You know, can we, can we put it as an attachment to the talk? But I will also say to you, you know, I made these up and uh, what I would suggest is that you read them and rather than think, you know, this is the official way to practice with the paramitas, uh, to think this is a suggested, you know, and maybe as you read them a different language a different way of languaging, a different way of articulating. Recall moments when you feel motivated to be generous. How did it feel? What perspective, relationship, or relationship to others did it engender? How the inquiry into generosity stimulates go entering into being what we are and learning from it. What's it like when I'm generous? What's it like when I'm not generous? What's going on? Recall moments of not being generous. What feelings, relatedness did that stir up? And can it be matter of fact? Can, you, can, you, can it not be uh, some reason to invalidate, to criticize? and so on with each of the paramitas. Um, and how how to take the teachings, you know, earlier the, this morning, I was reading uh, a text on this, what it's called, Jiji Uzamai this uh, Japanese term written in the 13th century, then a, a famous Zen teacher of the time, Menzan. I think it was the third, no, no, it wasn't about the 15th century. Uh, so that's my frame of reference. Having read a lot of Zen stuff over the years. But so what? It doesn't matter. Finding the frame of reference, finding the articulation that works for you, that ignites your enthusiasm, that ignites your um, your curiosity. Hmm. That sounds like it might be worth exploring. Sounds like it could be relevant and helpful to my life. 
So in reading when I write suggestions to explore the translation of it that ignites your interest. To trust yourself to be capable of that. To take to heart what it creates. And then that stimulates the next parameter, which is uh, a diligence. But a diligence that has a heartfelt purposefulness. And, and then the next parameter is uh, immersion. And of course, in the great Zen paradox is we're always immersed in our life. It's impossible not to be. We're always under the influence of so many uh, particulars. Coming back to my apartment and watching, you know, I haven't really lived here for over eight months. So it, initially it had a certain kind of strangeness. You know? And of course it had a deep familiarity. I've lived in the same apartment for a long time, but initially it had a strangeness. And I could feel myself become immersed in it again. And that, uh, that immersion was becoming invisible. Yeah. Walking from the bedroom to the kitchen. Yeah. Walking from the fridge to the stove. without looking, pulling open the cutlery drawer and taking out a fork. Uh, our life is in immersion. And the challenge is, is to both have moments of motion immersion and also to have moments of, of the motion, the, the dropping of the fixed ideas and discovering immediately in, in the immediacy of the moment what's happening. And then within the ocean, letting this moment not be invisible, letting it become alive, letting, letting it have the quality of insentient being that teaches you what is. And then the sixth factor is um, insight. Yeah. How do we, uh, how do we be a, a good student? How do we keep returning the beginner's mind? even parts of yourself that you've seen for a long time. 
still seeing them will have something to offer. Before I left Tassahara, I tried to, uh, I, I spoke to one of those two people who were in that challenging dynamic. And I said, try to remember this, you know, something we talked about. And then four days later, I got an email saying, guess what? Guess what happened? And I thought, hmm, delusions are inexhaustible, aren't they? So we start over. And somehow, in that, there's a kind of hopefulness. And it supports our life. I often think that, that, that one of the most cruel things we can engage, inflict upon ourselves is despair. You know, which, uh, not to say, you know, we're utterly in control of our feelings, which we're not, but as best we can, you know. Can we remind ourselves? And we have some process. So I'll try to, with Koto's help, link these to this, uh, or somehow, if you wish, I'll leave to Koto uh, to, to make some suggestion. And then if it's not possible, just make up your own. Maybe that's an even better idea. What are the reflections? What reflections would be helpful for you with regards to patience? What practices would be helpful for you? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.